No, this is hilarious. I'm telling you guys right now. This is hilarious. I'm having deja vu. That's all I can say. <laughs> I'll tell you. All right. Okay. Start the program one more time, please. We're going to start again. You ready? Take two. Take three. Me. This is take three now. All right. You ready? Yes. All right. <laughs> all right. Deep breath. Jono and good day to Mark in Connecticut and wherever you may be around the world. It is good to have your company. It is time for Pearls from the Torah Portion with Keith Johnson and Nehemiah Gordon. G'day, gentlemen. Hey, Jono. G'day, Jono. It's great to be here from Jerusalem. And I want to give a shout out to all the people who are sharing the Torah Pearls over on Facebook. Please keep sharing it. We want to get the message out. Thank you for sharing, Rebecca and Margaret and Patty and Gary. Keep sharing. Hey, listen, I want to say something. This is kind of exciting because I know now there's been some folks that have started listening only in the last few weeks. And one group that started listening is the folks who listen uh, uh, have been uh, sharing the Torah pearls and our friend Abby over at Arud Awakening and all the folks that are over there that are listening. We want to thank you for listening. A great shout out to you guys. Keep listening and tell your friends. Grand. Thank you very much. And uh, i tell you what, today we are in Beha, which is Leviticus 25 verse 1 to 26 verse 2. It's about a chapter long. It's so short. Keith, you know what? I feel like I've already done it. Oh my goodness. I tell you what, let me, just, <laughs> let me tell you something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to basically just bring it right to the forefront. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got to tell you something pretty amazing. Here. Yeah, tell them. No, I'm going to tell them. This is very important. You know what? We are, we're, we're, about, to, we're about to go into this section here. And, and let me tell you the good news. We've already studied it. The three of us That's so you're going to get the overflow of what we've already done let's get started it begins like this and Yehovah spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai we're back stop. on Mount Sinai no, stop it, it, Nehemiah when, when like you hear that this, this, when you hear that what does that make you think about when it says and Yehovah said unto Moses on Mount yeah what does that make you think of well so that's interesting so the word be uh, which is the Hebrew word that means in or at mm. so you could uh, mm -hmm. is what it says here so it's literally you could translate this and Yehovah spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai or in Mount Sinai. He's not necessarily at the top of Mount Sinai. He could actually be That's at the it. foot of Mount Sinai, camped mm -hmm. there for uh, possibly years, it sounds like, in one of the places. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they actually camped at Sinai for a number of years. And mm -hmm. so this isn't part of that revelation at Sinai when Moses went up for 40 days and 40 nights. What we're dealing with here, you know, is the situation where uh, Yehovah would call to Moses and he would speak to him in the tent of meeting. Um, you know, they set up that tent and he would speak to him or he'd speak to him from the cherubim, from the kruvim, um, you know, from between the kruvim. And so th so this is one of these revelations that took place over the period of 40 years. And, and one of the things that we've talked about and, and we'll talk about more when we get to the book of Numbers is that, it, you know, the, the whole myth of the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. That, that's not what the Torah says. The Torah is clearly revealed over a period of 40 years. It's a series of revelations which were put together and each one was written down on a separate scroll at some point, and then they were put together, and, and then they weren't always put together in chronological order. And in that respect, mm -hmm. they're very similar to the Torah pearls, because you know people may think that we <laughs> get together and record these each week, but actually, I thought the that. Torah actually, pearls you know what? You know what? I, really I thought we got together and recorded it. Yes. No, but but not uh, but not in chronological <laughs> order, because actually the last episode we just recorded was in the Book of Numbers, and now we're back in Leviticus. How did that? Um, hey, and listen. So, and, and so it's actually very similar to the way the Torah itself was revealed to Moses in that, you know, God might have revealed to him Numbers 19, and then uh, next week he made have you know, revealed to him Leviticus 25. And then later they were they were put together, these different sections, for re all kinds of reasons, uh, you know, the ordering was put together. Um, and one of them had to do – one of them was simply the principle of association that there might be a word in one section – that then is referenced in the next section, and that's how they would remember it. Do you reckon that yeah. maybe it ever happened that uh, Yehovah was speaking to Moses and telling him stuff, and and he's writing it down, and then uh, later on, you know, he's collating it all, and Moses says, "You know, I know I put this scroll somewhere. I'm sure I wrote that down. <laughs> it's it's here. I've got a scroll yeah. all written out, but there's nothing written on it. I'm sure I had one yes. that. I, yeah. yeah, we might have to do that one again. Well, let me say this. One one thing that excites me when I read this, I'm always reminded um, of both personal experience and really the significance of this whole idea of at or in Mount Sinai, just the beauty of uh, our father calling out a people, bringing them to a place, even though they were there for that period of time. And whenever it was written, just this idea that he speaks to him and he tells him something. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I still 
can't get used to the idea that we actually have access to the living Word of God and that we're able to open it and to read it and to, in a sense, experience what Moses experienced. Mm-hmm. And he called in the morning and he said, Keith, come to your, 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 your Torah and open the Torah. And he speaks to us. And it's just, I don't know, guys. You know, I'm always excited about stuff, but I get excited about that. So. And there he is, and and in verse 2, he is speaking, is it speak to the children of Israel and say to them, and this is one of the most controversial phrases, when you come into the land. I love it. That's what it says. Why is that controversial? Well, Well, because because it's controversial, Nehemiah, let me say right now why it's controversial, because you got people that live in places like Australia and other parts around the world. Who, uh, who basically don't understand that the significance <laughs> of the land determines the time of the land. But that's something we can talk about in another another program. Uh, Jonah and I will have that fight at another time. But I think it's really important that it says, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you. Mm-hmm. And then we get into this issue mm-hmm. of the issue Amen. of counting. So I'm, 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 I get real excited about this. I get kind of fired up. Jonah and I are having a, a, a side fight here on this, but it's, it's going to work out. We'll get into the ring sometime on there fairly soon, no yeah. doubt. But yes. when you come into the land which I give you, uh, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yehovah. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But on the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, uh, a, land uh, a Sabbath to Yehovah. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor the grapes uh, gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is a year of rest for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be for food for you, and for you, for your males and your female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. Now, the question is, Nehemiah, the question is, is it just when you come into land? Is it just for Israel, the, uh, the Shemitah year? Well, the way this has definitely been understood historically uh, is that is that uh, you know and based on what it clearly says is that this is, applies to the land and that's how it's always been understood that when there were Jews living outside the land of Israel they they didn't observe the shemitah and and it does seem that there's some there's a holiness to the land of Israel and this is is part of observing that holiness is that every every seventh year you let the land rest mm-hmm. and um, you know and then and then it talks about um, uh, we're going to hear about how if you know if you you know if, if you don't let the land rest, then we read that in Leviticus twenty six uh, verses thirty four and forty three. Uh, it talks about if you don't let the land rest, and then you know you sin against God, He's going to send you off into exile. And it says, and then the land shall rest her Sabbaths uh, all the days of its desolation mm-hmm. uh, when you are in the land of your enemy. Then 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 the land shall uh, rest, and her Sabbaths shall be um, um, translated as shall be accepted. Um, so basically, there's going to be a situation where Israel sins, and this actually happened. We know that this happened. That Israel was sent into exile for 70 years, and now we're in a very long exile. Um, you know, and in the book of Chronicles, it talks about the 70-year exiles in, in Babylon. In 2 mm-hmm. Chronicles 36, 21, it says, To fulfill the word of Jehovah according to the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had uh, fulfilled her Sabbaths, all the ma- days of desolation of her Sabbaths, to fulfill the 70 years. That's almost a verbatim quote mm. of Leviticus 26, verses 34 and 43. And so this was predicted in the, birth, uh, in the book of Leviticus sometime around 1450 BCE, and then it actually came to pass in the 6th century BCE, mm-hmm. which is what, like, I'm bad at math, but that's something like 800 years later. I mean, that, that you know, that, that amazes me that this actually came to pass. And this is actually um, a very important aspect of our relationship with God in the land of Israel. And so what some people have done uh, that I've seen, you know, lately is they've said, well, it's not just the land of Israel, it's anywhere in the entire world. And, um, you know, they're, they're of course, entitled to, uh, you know, that opinion. Um, the, as a Karite Jew, my motto is search well in the scripture and, and don't blindly follow others' opinions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, you can you can say that, but it seems to me pretty clear this has to, you know, this is about this, the rest of the land. And it says when you come into the land, and it seems that this is specific to the land of Israel. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Keith? Do you do? Are you, do you stop your gardening no. over there in Charlotte? When no, you, uh... no, no, no. Here's here's the thing that I just think is amazing. And I want to say this. There are, and we we've, we've talked about this before, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jono, myself, and Nehemiah. But in, and and we we've tried to our best to 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 dig into this information um, with some integrity. But I want I want to just say that this idea of the land is not something that we can just pass over. You know, when you talk about uh, the God of Israel the people of Israel, the land of Israel, the scriptures that were brought from, I mean, that's no small thing. And the things that actually happen that, like I like to say, that are hardwired into the land of Israel, God's time, us knowing what time it is, God's uh, 
holy days, those days where, and he said, listen, when these holy days come, come to me in the land, in Jerusalem, where my name is placed forever. Mm. Where is his name placed? Right there in the land. So I don't think we can, I don't think we can just pass over this. I do know that people have spent extensive time and research and energy and all sorts of things to try to figure all this out for how it fits with America and how it fits with uh, England and all that stuff. But I really, really believe as I'm reading this and as we've talked about it before, that this is this is an issue that's kind of like a if I can use this word carefully a ground zero. This is the spot. This is the place. This mm. is the this is where this is the navel. This is the belly button. This is where life comes from. I mean, it's like you know sure. the land has got to be central to us understanding the scriptures. And I don't think we can pass it off. Though I will say I want to thank people like Joe Joseph Demond who has Joe. worked extensively on this. Joseph, I didn't get a chance to give you a shout out because hey. uh, in our first our first take, Joseph, they had me in stitches, and so I, I wasn't <laughs> able to say that. And and for everybody else, it's my understanding that Michael Rood has done work on this and other people have done work on this. I've not gotten a chance to read all of that, but I do know this. Um, what we're talking about here is what's focused is the land. And so I want to just mm. put my stake in and say that I believe that that's a very important aspect uh, regarding understanding this whole issue of the Sabbath year. So I think uh, we, we, we have touched on this before, but it seems uh, right to mention it again. And that's um, Genesis 41 verses 34 and 35. Joseph is telling Pharaoh what's, what, what he should be doing. He said, let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. There's seven plentiful years, and it goes on to say, and let them gather all the food and of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep it in the city. So obviously, at least in Egypt at that time, uh, it certainly seems that they didn't observe a Shemitah year. Oh, no. So it's, it's worth pointing out perhaps. Okay. So, hey, let, let, me, say, one, one, let me just say this. And, and I think this was something that uh, we, we had discussed before when we went over this. One of the things uh, that I wanted to ask was uh, uh, how this is laid out in the land of Israel regarding this idea of the land resting. It's my understanding as I've been there and hearing from my friend Nehemiah that there 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 is an attempt to say, hey, this this was cro- these were crops that were not taken during this year. I mean and so Nehemiah, you you, well, you actually experienced yes this. and no. So okay. what most um, I would say most Jews who, who try to observe this, and look, I got to give people like Joe and, and and even the Orthodox Jews who attempt to observe this, I got to give them credit mm. um, for making for making an attempt, even though I think they're a little bit you know misguided. Uh, but maybe I'm the one who is, who is misguided. In any event, the way it's usually they usually attempt to observe it is what they'll what they'll do is they'll uh, they'll say, well, you know, this is the sabbatical year, but I you know I've I've got I've got a mortgage and I've got you know bills to pay and I've got you know a loan on my farm equipment, so I, I just can't not you know, harvest the stuff this year because the bank isn't going to say, yeah, you've got a year off, um, even though that's what we're going to see what it says in Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so what, what they'll do is they get this, uh, they basically create a, a legal fiction, a loophole that allows them to continue to harvest the grain. And that's what most Orthodox Jews will do in Israel who, who try to observe this. And so when you see, um, you know, when you see, a, you actually go to a, um, just about any, uh, certainly in Jerusalem, about any, um, uh, you know, um, produce store where they have fresh fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. and you'll see a sign that says this produce is not from the sabbatical year, and it's certified by a rabbi. But it, but you'd have to really read the small print and or ask the rabbi to find out that well, actually, it is from the sabbatical year, but because of the loophole, they're allowed to do it. Uh, they're right. allowed to harvest that grain. Right. There's some kind of you know uh, permission to do it. Um, in any event, you know, I, I think um, I, I think there's a bigger issue for me, which isn't how to keep the sabbatical year, because to me it's pretty obvious how to keep it. The problem for me is when to keep it, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and it says we're to count every seven years. And if mm-hmm. if we compare the the weekly Sabbath to the yearly Sabbath, you know, it's not just any count. You know, with the weekly Sabbath, it's not just work any six days and rest in the seventh. There's a perpetual, unbroken cycle going back to creation. Amen. And now you and and if you look at the ancient Jewish sources, you don't find anyone who's ever called that into question in, in Jewish mm-hmm. sources. You don't find anyone who's ever suggested no, it's actually Tuesday or no, it's actually Friday. You know, no nowhere. There's a complete consensus in ancient Jewish sources um, and even modern Jewish sources that this is, um, you know, that, that, that about the weekly cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you now compare that to the weekly Sabbath or the, excuse me, the yearly Sabbath, which is you work the land for six years and you rest in the seventh year and you try to figure out, well, which seventh year do we rest? And you'll find that any given year has been proposed by different, different Jewish sources 
as um, you know, as the year. Mm-hmm. And there's debates that go back and forth about it. So, for example, um, there's a statement in the Talmud that say the temple was destroyed in the going out of the sabbatical year. Well, that's great. Now we can figure out when the sabbatical year is. We know the temple was destroyed in 70. Going out of the sabbatical year, presumably that means, well, what does that mean, actually? So that's a Hebrew idiom, and that could mean one of two things. It could mean that the year 70 was uh, was actually the, uh, a sabbatical year, and it was towards the end of the year. Or it could mean 69 was a sabbatical year, and then 70, out, se- then 70 was the going out of the sabbatical year. And we have the phrase going out of the Sabbath that we use like a da- on a daily basis. You hear mm-hmm. that in Israel, Motzei Shabbat, which means Saturday night after the Sabbath is over, the going out of the Sabbath. So which one is the going out of the sabbatical year? And, and this is something that was, has been debated since ancient times. Now, to complicate matters, if you look in rabbinical sources, they actually think the temple was destroyed in the year 68 or possibly the year 69. Um, so which one of these is the sabbatical year, 68, 69, 70, or 71? Who knows? That's Take the problem. Pick. We don't really Take know. And, and then there's even other, other theories about it or other information about it. So there are these tombstones from a place called Soar or Zoar mm-hmm. in southern Israel. Um, actually, it's on the shore of the Dead Sea, the southern end of the Dead Sea. And they found about uh, over a dozen tombstones that say on them, it'll say such and such year from the destruction of the temple, which is such and such of the sabbatical year. And you think, okay, well, this is the clue. This is what we need to figure out when the true sabbatical year is. But if you put all those together, and I've done this, I've done extensive research on it, you end up with the conclusion that, well, we really don't know when the sabbatical year is. And that's the conclusion I've come to, that unlike the weekly Sabbath, where there's no question in Jewish sources about it, when it comes to the, we- the, the yearly Sabbath, it's anybody's guess. And so what I say is when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us when the true Sabbath is for the, Amen. For the, for the year. Mm-hmm. And so it goes on to say that you shall count seven Sabbaths for, uh, of years for yourself, seven times seven, and the time of the seven Sabbaths shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet, quick, Keith, the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land. The day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay. Amen. And you shall, conse- you shall consecrate the 50th year. Now, now I've got a question. Okay, so the Yobel year, the Jubilee year, is it mm-hmm. every 49 years or is it every 50 years? Well, it's clearly every 50 years. <laughs> okay, so there is, there, I've, I've heard people say that the 50th year is also the first year of the next counting of the uh, 49. Right. Okay, so, so, that, so that's, a, that's a legitimate debate that goes on in the Jewish sources as well. And certainly the, the, and the rabbis will give different opinions about that. And the one that won out in their sources is that, in fact, uh, exactly what you just said. Um, and I say that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us which one it is. But look, like I said, there are people who have done a lot of research on this. Um, you know, Keith mentioned two people, Joe Dumond and Michael Rood, who have done some research, and they've come to different conclusions. Um, you know, and I, and I recommend that people go and check, those, check out you know, the re- research that they've done and decide for yourselves. I know from the research I've come, you know, done, I've, I've, I just say I don't know when it is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's interesting, especially, you know, when you do compare it to the weekly, I'll go back again to the issue of the weekly Sabbath, which is that if you, if you look in other languages, people have preserved, you know, we call it in English Saturday. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, if you, you know, which you know, some people say, well, that's the day of, the, of Saturn. But in Hebrew, it's not called Saturday. You know, we, we number the days. We have first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, and then the seventh day is called Yom HaShabbat. Now, in many languages, it's also called Yom HaShabbat. In Spanish, it's Sabado. Mm-hmm. In uh, Arabic, it's Yom HaSabd. In, uh, in over a hundred languages, it's called something like Shabbat, Sabbat, a form of the word Shabbat. Mm-hmm. And now, compare that to again to the yearly Sabbath, and it's anybody's guess. Mm. So, sure. I got to tell you guys something. You know, it's interesting, uh, Nehemiah and, and Jono. I was um, I mentioned this. I've mentioned this a couple times, but I'm, I'm working on this, and it and it's so. It was so interesting. So, one of the things that happens in uh, in Rome, I got to bring up Rome. I was in Rome. Uh, the the priest. I had a priest uh, that I talked to. Got him on camera, and mm-hmm. he said, "Hey." Uh, if you get a special ticket and you're able to come and see the Pope, you're going to hear him in seven different languages. And so, you know, I worked diligently. Long story short, I got this ticket, got to the place, seven different languages. And what happens is a priest stands up, he reads his language, and he sits down, and then the Pope does his sermon on that on that language. So, for for example, they'll do it in Latin, and they'll do it in German, and they'll do it in Spanish, and they'll do it in French. And they'll do... One of the coolest things that happened while I was there is that the priest says to me, oh, yes, he's probably going to preach from the Psalms or something like that. And so I'm kind of sitting there, and I've got people around me. Some people are falling asleep, and I'm sitting there listening, and all of a sudden I hear in the German language the word Sabbath. 
And then I'm like, my, my ears peak up, perk up. And I'm like, what, what was that? I'm not a real German guy, but I, I know what the word Sabbath is. Mm-hmm. So then the guy gets up in uh, Spanish, and I hear again the word Sabbath. At this point, I'm thinking, are you telling me that the Pope's going to preach about the Sabbath? I mean, because guys, you can understand something. <laughs> Linda Chemia is right. So I'm sitting there, and I'm listening. And I mean, listen, I'm telling you, seven different languages in the hot sun outside listening to a guy who can't hoop like Nehemia. It's going to be a dull, it's going to be a long day until <laughs> I kept hearing in the seven languages the word Sabbath. And I do a great, 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 great uh, explanation of this. The Pope actually preaches on it. And uh, you can hear more about that when I do the radio interview with Jono in Australia about, uh, about time. But anyway, Nehemia, I just wanted to confirm with you. It's, it's really cool to hear the word Sabbath in different languages. Mm. And, and, and we got we to talk. We got to stop. We got to go back to the, Jew, to the sabbatical year mm-hmm. and talk mm-hmm. about exactly what we're allowed to do, what, what you're not allowed to do. Because what, what you know, some people will, they think is that you're not allowed to eat produce of the land from the sabbatical year or from the jubilee year, and that's actually not what it says. If we go back to verse six, it says, "And it shall be the Sabbath of the land mm-hmm. for you uh, for food, meaning for whatever food. grows of itself, you are allowed to." Eat. It says for you and for your for your male slave and your female slave mm-hmm. and your hired worker and your and your um, resident who, who lives with you, with yeah. you. Um, and, and for the for your animal and your and the wild animals that are in your land shall be it shall be uh, its produce to eat. So anything that grow and the point is what you can't do, what you're forbidden to do, is this concentrated um, harvest where you mm-hmm. take it off of yourself. And then you sell it to the uh, the, the stranger, mm-hmm. and you you know give mm-hmm. it to your animals. What what it's talking about is everyone can come into the field and take what they need, and um, you know and then and then eat. And uh, and there's actually an interesting passage that kind of alludes to this fact, which is in the book of Amos. Can, can we jump over to the, to yes. the book of Amos real quick? Let's do that. Where it talks about. Um, let's see if I can find it real quick. So it's Chapter. Amos. Chapter 8, um, and the key verse is verse 5, mm-hmm. uh, but let's talk even before that. Maybe you could start reading in verse 4. Hear this, yeah. you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying scales by deceit. All right. So this is really cool because there's a couple things going on here. First of all, we have uh, a play on words. There's a word pun over in verse four. It says to make in your translation to make the the poor fail, and the word there is lashbit. It's the verb of the word shabbat. So you could translate this as to make the, the poor Sabbath. Now, what does that mean to make the poor Sabbath? And what it's really talking about is the poor are going out into the fields and taking whatever they want. Because what he's talking about here here is a sabbatical year. And in the mm-hmm. sabbatical year, the field's open to everybody. And they're Come saying, oh, man, we want the new moon to pass. Why the new moon? Because that's the beginning of the Hebrew year when, when, when you know, the first day of the first month, mm-hmm. that's when the, the, the new year begins. Nehemiah, I've got to interrupt you. I've got to interrupt you. that's over. No, I've got to interrupt you because you don't understand. See, if you read this, you're, you're reading this entirely too deep. You're looking at the Hebrew. Just look at the English and then you can determine your own <laughs> an interpretation of this. And you can have dark kid? moons. No, I'm telling you, you can have dark moons. You can have Sabbaths on other days. You can have all sorts of things. And, and, and that way we don't have to get into what it actually says. Because there's a bunch of people out there, just like there are those that are doing research that aren't doing research, and they're just simply reading the English, and they're coming up with all these crazy theories wherein they're determining the beginning of God's time. And this happens to be a thing for me right now that just drives me nuts. So are you telling me, Nehemiah, that this is not simply just a little English uh, attempt where you can come up with an entire theory that takes away the idea what the what the new moon is? Well, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that you're talking about, Keith, is, and I've heard this from some, some people – is that um, is that what they'll say is well you can't work on on the new moon day and they get and they get that's from this verse it says when will the new moon pass that we may you know sell grain but uh, right. but <laughs> but but in the context uh, first of all there's no commandment anywhere in the Torah that says that new moon is a day of rest it's, the Torah is very specific there are seven annual days that are days of rest in addition to the weekly Sabbath and those are the first day of unleavened bread the last day of unleavened bread Shavuot the feast of weeks which is a one day holiday. You've got Yom Teruah, which is a day of trumpets or day of shouting. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. You've got the first day of Sukkot uh-huh. and the last day of Sukkot. That's seven uh-huh. days. Seven Somebody completion. say seven, Jonah. Seven. Somebody say seven. Seven, seven. Mm-hmm. So you got seven okay. days in which you are required to rest. And it says very specifically for each one of those, you know, do not work on those days. No work may be done. And uh, on the new moon, uh, it says nothing of the sort. So to say that Amos is telling us we're not allowed to work on the new moon 
Well, if that's true, then Amos is a false prophet. Because Amos, he can't add to the Torah. Mm -hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, you shall not add and you shall not take away. Deuteronomy 12, 32, you shall not add and you shall not take away. And in the Hebrew, it's not 1232. If you look in the Hebrew Bible, that's Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, not do not add, do not take away. And then it continues to talk about even if a prophet comes and performs miracles, don't listen to him if he's telling you to worship another god. And that includes if he tells you to worship a god God who adds or takes away commandments to the Torah. That's a false prophet. So I don't believe Amos is a false prophet. And I think if we understand Amos in his context with the word pun that that he's performing here, that he's talking about a sabbatical year. And and when he says, uh, you know, when will the, the new moon pass and this, uh, that we may uh, literally you could translate it as that we, tr- we trade in, in produce and the Sabbath that we may sell grain. Um, so the Sabbath he's talking about is the annual Sabbath, not the weekly mm-hmm. Sabbath. And the annual Sabbath begins on the, or excuse me, it ends on the first day of the first month. So as soon as that day has passed, then they can start selling the grain and, uh, you know, and making the money. And mm-hmm. until then, it, God's giving it away for free. And they're like, how are we going to make money if God's giving it away for free? <laughs> and Amen. so, there's, you know, so they want to swallow up the poor and cause them to Sabbath because they're going and getting, you know, just going in the grain, into the fields and collecting whatever mm-hmm. they need. And these are the people who have the big storehouses. These are the people who sell the grain with the, you know, and, and, and rip the people off. And, um, and, you know, they, they do pr- price gouging and, and, uh, and they have unequal weights and measures quite literally, mm-hmm. you know, they'd have a big weight when they were, um, let's see, big weight when they're buying or selling or you know, whatever they would, they right, would mess right. with the weights. So they would always benefit and they'd have a small weight when they're selling and a big weight when they were buying. And so these are the people, these are the rich people with the, the, the storehouses. They don't want the poor out there collecting whatever they want. They want them to Sabbath. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and so and so here's a, a rep. This is referring back to what we're talking about in Leviticus 25. Now there, and I'm not going to name names, but I heard about this group of people of um, over in, in the United States, and, and I guess in like some place like Pennsylvania, where they they were. And look, I got to give them credit because they were trying to keep the sabbatical year. But when they what they ended up doing was really, I believe, turning this whole thing into legalism. What they did is they said, "Well, we can't eat from the produce of the sabbatical year." Doesn't say that, by the way, but that's but that's what they said. Mm-hmm. And they said, "We can't. We really shouldn't even be eating animals that have grazed on the produce of the sabbatical year." Yay! <laughs> did, you, did you catch that? Well, it'd be a bit so of clearly. Clearly, it says in verse six, in verse seven, that it's for the livestock and for the beasts that are in, in your land. It explicitly says that. So, what they would do is the leader of this group would then raise animals that would eat produce that was that was uh, raised, you know, uh, grown in a in before the sabbatical year. And uh, and of course he would sell that for a very high premium because how you know how many animals do you you know do you have in the world that didn't eat the grain from the sabbatical year or the mm. or the grass from the sabbatical year? I mean you know basically just his. Um, so he created this man-made law, this commandment of ma- men learned by rote, and then used it to exploit the people. I mean that's exactly what Amos was talking about. It's not supposed yeah. to be about that. No. So exactly. you know I, I hear that stuff and it, and it gets me upset. I'm sorry. I'm 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 on a tangent here. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. No. No. I just think again. I think I think what's beautiful about what we're trying to do, and I want to say this. I, I want to take just a moment to say this. I think that what's beautiful about what we're trying to do, <clears throat> the three of us, is to find out you know history, language, and culture context. Bring this Torah to the people. Ask the question how we can apply it today. Now again, I want to tell those folks that have worked so diligently in this area. What one of the things I appreciate about it is that people would take it that serious. I mean, and I think it should be taken that serious. But again, if we're taking it that serious and we lose context or we lose language or we lose history or we lose purpose or we lose application, then what we're doing is actually adding commands and we don't want to do that. So mm-hmm. I just want to say again, it's awesome for, you know, again, right. I, when I was over in Israel, one of the beautiful things about uh, the Orthodox community that I appreciate personally is just the amazing way that they will see something, however it is interpreted, sometimes interpreted wrong, sometimes interpreted right, but applied wrong, wherein they say, how can we do this? Because we're in the land, we are God's people, how can we do this? We want to have uh, a fear and trembling before him and do this. And you know, again, the beautiful thing about it is the intent, the difficult thing about it is the result. And sure. the result sometimes ends up being uh, really more of a problem, adding adding more loads to people mm-hmm. uh, than they could even bear. That sounds familiar. But anyway, that, that's, <laughs> that's what I want to say about it's that. Not, uh, it's not unusual in our tradition either. Verse 14, and if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. 
According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God. I am Yehovah, your God. Amen. And isn't it amazing that, that, that's, the, that that's the application? Is, isn't it amazing that in the end, the statement is, look, do not take, and I'll use my little NIV Methodist Bible over here, verse 17, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am mm. Yehovah your God. Wow. Wait a minute. Do not take advantage of each other. Why? <laughs> fear Yehovah. Why? And again, I, I, I talked about this before with us, and I, I want to do it again here today, because when I read this, the thing that hits, the, hits me is that I go to the book of James. It's a New Testament issue. I know that different people don't want to hear that, but what I love about James is he wasn't accepted by some of the church fathers. And anytime the church fathers don't like something, that's usually something that I want to look at. <laughs> so, for example, <laughs> the, so, so, when the church fathers looked at James, they said, wait a minute, hold on, James sounds too Tanakhish. sounds too Old Testament-ish. It sounds too much like it's uh, something that doesn't have enough grace in it. And so I want to just do, you know, and, and General, you're awesome at this. I want to know if you would do it. If you would go to James for us real quick and read just one little section, and then Nehemiah, you can kind of hold your ears, shut your ears, or you can comment, and I think you'll probably comment uh, on this because um, stick wax because, in my ears. No, no, <laughs> wax in your ears. So, um, um, so I want to, I want you to read if you would James chapter five, just the first part. James chapter uh, five. Um, okay. Chapter so five, just the first part. Yaakov chapter five. Now, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and that corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborer, laborers who move your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Sebaot. I mean, and I, the reason I just wanted to bring that one verse, Nehemiah, I know you're going to say something here. Hold on. It says the cry, no, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear the Lord your God. It's almost like James is peeking with one ear over here in this section and saying, you know, there's some application here for us. And I think there's application for us even in this year that we live in three different continents. What does it mean to not take advantage of each other, but fear Yehovah, for he is God? I mean, that to me, mm -hmm. and it just jumps off the page and, you know, go ahead. Now, now on a, a grammatical note, what's really interesting here is, you know, you got there in, in your translation, Jono, mm -hmm. it says, um, let's see, it says, uh, Lord of Sabaoth. And which, of course, is you know a, a direct translation because Sabaoth doesn't mean anything in Greek, the, but it says in Greek Sabaoth, Sabaoth, and what that is is a, a, a transliteration of, of the Hebrew, which in, in the Hebrew you see repeatedly in the Hebrew it says Yehovah Sabaoth, Yehovah of hosts, and the hosts they say are the hosts of heaven or possibly the hosts, the meaning the host is a large number of something, a large number of angels. So Yehovah of the uh, of the Tzavaot, of the many angels, or possibly of the of the many people of Israel. Mm -hmm. So Yehovah Tzavaot. So anyway, when it says in the Greek Lord of, when it says in the Greek Kurio Tzavaot, that's uh, Lord of Tzavaot. That that obviously is a translation that originally at some point must have said mm -hmm. Yehovah Tzavaot. Mm -hmm. And the proof of that is, uh, I do a quick search of my computer here. I see Romans chapter nine, verse twenty nine, yep. and there. Uh, in Romans, he's quoting the book of Isaiah. He says, and Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth has uh, left us a seed. And so uh, there, uh, again, it's in the Hebrew, it's obvious. I mean, you can prove it. It's in the Hebrew of Isaiah, it says, Yehovah Sabaoth. And apparently James here, who isn't quoting anything, who's, who's speaking you know, some original words here, even though they're obviously not original concepts, but he's speaking something that isn't a direct quote from the Old Testament. He's still saying, Yehovah Sabaoth. And and what excites me is that this is this is you know they came through and every place that said Yehovah in the New Testament they changed it to Lord mm -hmm. but they messed up they missed this little thing here they left Sabaoth <laughs> here in the Greek and that's like Good. a little trace that originally even in the Greek of the New Testament it said Yehovah how about that oh, and boy. you know what next to this uh, this little passage here in my New King James Study Bible I've actually got a word focus <laughs> can I can I read that out. <laughs> Here he comes with his little commentary. Here's my Go little ahead, commentary. John. It's got a little word focus here. It says, Lord of Sebaot. It says, the name means the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, or the master of creation. 
it was suitable for James to use this familiar Old Testament title, and then it has in brackets a cross-reference to Psalm 2410, I'm going to go there in a minute, in a letter to, quote, Jewish Christians, for they would have understood that the choice of this particular name of God was especially appropriate in this context. The rich oppress the poor because they think no one will stand up for them, but the Lord of all the hosts of heaven and earth is their defender, and he is coming back to make all things right. Amen? Amen. 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 That's something so, we can so all Martin, agree on. So, so, so Psalm 24.10, can I read that in the Hebrew? Psalm 24.10 in English in, in, uh, says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Selah. In the Hebrew it says, Mi melech kavod. Who is this king of glory? Yehovah tzvaot. Who melech kavod? Yehovah of hosts. Yehovah tzvaot. He is the king of glory. Amen. Can I get a Selah? Amen. Amen. So listen, uh, I want to say this, and again, I I, I want to be tough on I want to be tough on people like Martin Luther, who mm. who 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 probably didn't have the King James uh, Study Bible where he could see that, but you know he knew enough to know that James was writing uh, to a group of people who uh, who absolutely understood what it was that he meant and where he got it from, and that particular group of people, uh, you know, Martin Luther said, hey, that's not a group of people we want to want to highlight. We want to have nothing to do with the Jews. Mm-hmm. We want to have nothing to do with those that would believe in the Yehovah Tzavot. We want to create a new God and a new opportunity mm-hmm. and a new religion. And funny, it's interesting. I get it. I'll leave Martin Luther alone, I guess. But I, I want to say one Can thing. I-, I was reading some historical. I was reading some historical information, and they were talking about this issue of time. Since we're in Leviticus 25, talking about time, understanding the times, mm-hmm. when the time was, when was the sabbatical year, when was the 40, 49th to the 50th year. And and Martin Luther actually said at one point when they were having this conversation, he said, "There is no room in my church for this issue of time." He didn't say that. He did say that. And his point was, look, you guys talking about 49 and 50 years, six days or seven days, when is the uh, Passover? When is Pesach? When is the seven times arrest? There's no room in my church for that. Let's just get to the good news. And you know what, you guys? That's why today when we're sitting and talking about this, there are some people that would say, what are you guys wasting your time in uh, Leviticus chapter 25? No, Leviticus chapter 25 is the very word of God as it is connected throughout from Mm -hmm. Bereshit through this entire Torah portion that we're going to be on this entire Torah series that we're going to do. Those five books of Moses, those books that some people say have been, you know, done away with. This is the living word of God where there is Yahweh Zavaot. He's the one that's going to step in. So. That's Amen. as much Amen. as I'm going to say about Martin. No, but and let, if, let me add to that. We can't I, let him go. We can't let him go that easily. If I remember but, correctly, Keith, I do believe he called James the Epistle of Straw. He put it in the back of his translation, <laughs> and he was even thinking of leaving it off altogether. That's uh, what I was waiting for, Jono. If I, I remember correctly, I, I think for you to help me. You I think that Jono. <laughs> Now, just just remind me. I, I think uh, I think you once mentioned to me that you memorized the book of James entirely. Absolutely, I did. It was a one book, and I and I don't. You know, listen. I used to, I, I used to do scripture memory. Psalm one nineteen. It says, uh, "I've hidden your word in your heart that I might not sin against you." So, in a very young age, I started learning this idea of scripture. I know other people who've done this, but the one New Testament. There's only one New Testament book that I memorized from beginning to end, and I don't even know why. It was the book of James. Mm. And and uh, it was something that um, just resonated with me, and I never knew why until about 10 years ago when I finally got a chance to understand that there was this 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 idea that the Tanakh, the Torah, is the word of God, and it is mm. something that he wants to go around the world. And so that's why it's awesome to be doing this right now because it's fulfillment of Ki Mitzion Totsat Torah V'Devar Yehovah Merushalayim for the word, for the, you know, for, for Zion Yes, from Zion. Hey, yes, real, real quick, uh, Keith, because um, I know you have oh. a Master's of Divinity from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So just real quick for our younger listeners who don't know who Martin Luther is, because, I mean, you, you may laugh, but I've, I've actually had this conversation where I've you know, mentioned something about Martin Luther, and and, um, and and they thought I was talking about Martin Luther King. So so okay. I'm, not, I'm, not try, I'm not trying to be funny, but can you just okay. real quick tell the people who Martin Luther is and who Martin just Luther King was? Just a very, very quick little th- I, they know who Martin Luther King is. What are you talking about? No, but Martin, <laughs> let's assume they don't. Let's assume that they're from, you know, I don't know. Martin Luther, the man that I'm talking about, happens to be the uh, the the founder, if I can say, of the, uh, the, the Protestant Reformation in that he was the one that said to the Catholic Church, hey, you guys are doing some things that I don't agree with, and so what I want to do is start get, get, get away from that. And so he started the Lutheran, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, 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 the Lutherans or the Lutheran denomination actually is from this man, Martin Luther, who basically attempted, if I can say this, in, in one good sense, he said, I want to get away from the traditions of what the Pope was trying to put on him. And then he swung and said, so here's how we're going to do it. The problem was those that have taken Martin Luther's uh, uh, words and theology, etc., 
also took that part of him that was very anti-Semitic, mm-hmm. that he went from loving the Jews, the language of the Jews, the, the Hebrew Bible, wanting to convert the Jews, and once he couldn't, he started to hate the Jews and hate their Hebrew Bible and hate everything about them and wanted to actually wipe them out. And he was a spiritual advisor to one man named Hitler, which is actually a fact, but Martin Luther was a man that you know attempted to get away from traditions but then started some other traditions that ended up doing uh, just as much damage, and, in and, my opinion. Well, no, frankly, I mean, it's been said many times that he was the founder of the Nazi movement. I mean, there, there are people who have speculated and said as much. Uh, Nehemiah? Well, I mean, it, it's really interesting because I'm, I'm going through some uh, old papers and I, I came across something that was sent to me by a lady from the, the Lutheran World Federation. And this was probably mm-hmm. back in, I don't know, like 07 or something like that when Keith mm-hmm. and I were doing some research on, on the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, and we were talking about Martin Luther. And, and, and there, can, I, can I read what she sent? Mm. It's, it's really interesting. And because, I mean, I know it's totally talk, off topic, but it had to do with the issue of Martin Luther being an anti-Semite. And, and I'm glad you clarified that, Keith, for those who don't know, don't realize they think Martin Luther, you know, we're saying he's anti-Semite, but, but he fought for black rights, right? No, that's Martin Luther King in the 1960s. <laughs> Martin Luther, without the king, uh, just Martin Luther, he, uh, you know, nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the church in, in uh, I think it was like 1517 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the Nazis later looked to him as, as a, not that he was literally the spiritual advisor of Hitler, but they definitely looked to him as and he's talking about right called him as spiritual as, as inspiration mm. okay but martin so maybe from hitler's perspective he was but martin luther was dead at the time mm-hmm. for 300 right. 400 for 400 years or 450 years let me give you a quote while, while we're talking about why we're bashing martin luther let me just give you a quick quote that comes <laughs> to mind i do recall in uh, in his in in one of his latter books uh, there is a quote that says, if I were to baptize a Jew, I would tie a millstone around his neck, take him to the nearest bridge and push him off. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Mm. Oh, what's interesting about Martin Luther as, as an historical figure is that he starts out um, loving the Jews. He actually, in one of his early writings, he says something to the effect of, you know, you know, he says, he, you know, I'm embarrassed at the way the Catholic Church has treated the Jews. He says something like that in one of his earlier writings. Mm-hmm. And about 10 years later, when he saw he couldn't convert the Jews, mm-hmm. then he started to hate them. And I call that the spirit of Martin Luther. When we have, I mean, I see this today, people who say, oh, we love the Jews so much, we love Israel. Mm-hmm. But then when they actually interact with real Jews and they see that we won't roll over and convert to their beliefs, that we want to remain Jewish, um, then they start hating us. And, um, you know, so, I mean, and, and what that led to, you guys are right, no question that led to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther, he formulated this plan to exterminate the Jews in a book called The Jews and Their Lies. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was actually taken as a blueprint for the Nazis and used by used by them and that's actually something that's been repudiated by the lutherans today meaning no one (laughs) no and not even the lutherans is defending martin luther anymore they see wow this is what this led to and and then uh, the quote i'm looking for which i know we quoted in a prayer to our father uh that's the book that keith and i wrote on the hebrew origins of the lord's prayer and it, it says something to the effect there of how you know, basically what they've done, in addition to hating Jews, they've also deprived them themselves of part of their own heritage by hating Jews. They've forgotten that, you know, their teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, was a Jew. And, uh, uh, and they've been disconnected from their own, from, from the Jewish roots of their own faith. And, you know, they'll read something that, that, that Jesus taught. You know, they say they believe in him, but when it comes to actually reading what he said, they don't know what he's talking about because they've completely cut off the, any mm. connection to to, um, to to Jewish things and, and hatred of everything Jewish mm. to the point what they're really hating is everything that – or not everything, but a lot of the things that Jesus represented and taught um, and the cultural context certainly in which he he was, you know, uh, uh, active. And, um, and and so, uh, you know, so Martin Luther is kind of like a, a – he, you know, he's a he's – a, a controversial figure like on the one hand he's loving the jews and 10 years later he's hating them mm. and uh and 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 you know i think a lot of people a lot of protestants especially would say well what do you mean he's great he set the protestants free from the shackles of, of uh, catholicism you know before that anybody who spoke out against catholicism was put to death was burned at the stake and martin luther spoke out and he managed to you know get people the freedom to to express what they actually wanted you know more or less mm-hmm. i should say mm-hmm. they you know more or less had the freedom to uh, believe other things and do other things than what the Catholic Church was saying. And, uh, you know, and in that sense, um, you know, a lot of people say that's wonderful what he did. He was a great man. But then on the other hand, there was this dark side of him. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think it's one of the interesting things when you look at heroes in history, you'll find out that, you know, uh, you know, the heroes often have a dark side. And, um, and you know, I, don't, I, I think one of the things I think is so beautiful in the Tanakh is when we have uh, our forefathers and our kings and our, and our, our prophets we don't whitewash them. Mm. We don't say that King David was great. King David did a lot of bad things. 
and, but he was faithful to Jehovah, and um, and he paid for his crimes, mm. and um, and you know, and so he's got a good side and he's got a bad side. And I don't think we need to, you know, I think even those Protestants who want to look to Martin Luther as a hero for from their perspective, you know, they don't need to whitewash him and deny what he did. Amen. You know, um, you know, I, I think what you need to do is what the Lutheran World Federation did, which is to denounce the anti-Semitic teachings of Martin Amen. Luther. Even they have done that. So Amen. there it is. And I, can I say, Jonah, just one thing in closing. I, I, I always hesitate to open up these discussions because, you know, who knows? We might go for three hours on this. But it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome to have it. But let me just say this. I, I want to say that one of the things that really blessed me was I actually got I actually had it on my YouTube channel, uh, a little message on, on Martin Luther. I actually did it in a Lutheran church. And, and the reason I did it in a Lutheran church is that I wanted to be able – I don't like to just talk about these things on the radio where it's safe. And I'm in the United States. Hemi is in Israel. You're in Australia. We can say whatever we want. This is stuff that is real. And so I, what I decided to do was to go into a Lutheran church and to explain to them about this. What was beautiful was this particular Lutheran church uh, in, in, in uh, Minnesota actually not only embraced what it was that I was saying, but they have actually ended up being a sponsor to Hebrew Roots Movement right there in Minnesota and have hosted that conference mm. in Minnesota. So I've been back to Minnesota at that church where these people are saying, well, yeah, we do want to understand context. We do want to understand language. So I believe personally that there is a lot of people that are coming the, to the place of understanding and they're willing to look at the dark side and then also understand where the light is. And so Amen. hopefully... Can I stop you there for keep, a minute, Keith? You, I'm you, you trying to bring conclusion to him. I was in the middle right. of whacking oh, so, on. Are you kidding me? So, so you just said about how, how, these, how even these Lutherans are, are opening themselves up to the Hebrew roots of their faith is, is basically what you just said. Is that right? I don't know what I said. I was preaching for goodness <laughs> sakes. No, no, no. So, so that, that's what I understood there that you talk about how they're they're embracing the Hebrew roots movement as Lutherans. And I think that's really interesting because what you're saying is you can be a Lutheran and, you know, and I'm not Lutheran, you're not Lutheran, but whatever, right? You could be a Lutheran and, and still uh, be open to realizing, okay, you know, the, the, our faith has a he has Hebrew roots and, um, which, mm. I, I, you know, for them. And and I, I think that that's 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 important. I think because a lot of people will hear about Hebrew roots and say, okay, I've got to stop going to my church and I've got to you know join a messianic congregation and I've got to you know start wearing the kippa and the tzitzit. And and what oh, you're saying you say is you can actually. <laughs> I did because I was making fun of the way they pronounce it. The kippa and tzitzit. <laughs> kippa and tzitzit. <laughs> and, and, and what you're saying is that there are people out there. Maybe they're not supposed to be doing this, but there are people out there who are Lutheran who are turning to the Hebrew roots of their faith. That excites me. Mm. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. And good eyes to and, and all I'm, the and I'm not, I'm not knocking the other people either. I mean, what they're doing is, you know, each of these people is, is trying to, you know, have a relationship with the creator of the universe and understand that, okay, what they're trying to follow has these Hebrew roots. Let's understand them so we, you know, understand mm -hmm. those roots so we can, you know, have some kind of um, coherent faith that's based on something historical. Mm. There it is. There it is. Verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. Uh, that's an important verse. And then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather nor uh, of our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. I, I'm going to tell you what excites me about well, that, you guys. Just, just Let me just say this. I just think, and, and, I, and, this, and this is a touchy subject, so I, I want to be careful about it. But I just want to just, just focus on this, this idea of what we do uh, to bring provision and what God bring, does to bring provision. And what the powerful thing about this to me is just this idea that he knows what we need. He knows what, we're, mm -hmm. what we, we've got to have. And he says, now, look, if you listen to me now for this period of time, you're going to ask this question. But what will we eat? Mm -hmm. And he's like, look, I got that. Just do what I'm asking you to do. I've got that. And now I want to say that, that there are a lot of people who, who have been in this, this state of mind where they don't ever think that they can rest from their labor so that when the Sabbath comes, they don't rest. They keep working. They keep trying to get. They keep trying to do. They keep trying to do more and more and more. But I would challenge people to take this approach specifically regarding the Sabbath that on one day out of seven where we would rest and say, you know, on that day, we're not going to be doing the work. And let's see how Yehovah provides <clears throat> for us mm. in the midst of that. Yeah. And it's um, reminiscent, isn't it? It's reminiscent mm -hmm. of uh, Exodus 16 in regards to the weekly Sabbath. Um, you, mm -hmm. you see a similar thing 
double portion yes. there. And yeah. the land. Hey, so ver- so verse twenty two. Uh, the reason it's important, and I think this is maybe what you're trying to get me to say, mm-hmm. is uh, <laughs> um, so it says, and you shall plant the eighth year, and you shall eat from the har- the uh, the old produce until the ninth year. Well, why in the ninth year? And and the reason is that in the land of Israel, the the gr- the planting and growing cycle is such that you're you're always um, you're sowing your grain in the late fall um, mm-hmm. or in the fall in any event. You're sowing it in the fall, sometime around September, October, and um, and then you're harvesting it in March, April, uh, and if it's you know wheat, even into uh, May and June, and um, and so so you have you know uh, and the thing is that the the year begins in in the uh, month of the Aviv, which is usually around March. So what you end up happening is the eighth year begins, and that grain that was planted last year, you're not allowed to harvest. Mm-hmm. And um, and by the way, we're dealing here with the eighth year because it's the sabbatical year. So we've got the regular uh, six years of work, and then the seventh year is, is the sabbatical year, and then the eighth year is the jubilee year. And in that jubilee year, we have uh, um, you know we basically have grain that was maybe was growing in you know uh, from the previous years, but we're we're not we're not harvesting the grain in that eighth year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are planting it that year. The reason we're planting it is if we don't we don't plant it in the eighth year, it won't grow. We won't have a large amount of, of produce in the ninth year. Um, and that's the point that that you're you're planting at the end of the eighth year of this jubilee year, so that it will then grow at the beginning of the ninth year. So then you come to the month of the Aviv of the ninth year, and you've got a full crop that was planted the previous year. And, and that's important because in the rabbinical calendar, what they've done is they make the years begin in the seventh month, in the month of Tishrei. Whereas in the Hebrew calendar and in the, in the in scripture, it's very clear that it begins at the first day of the first month, which is the month of in, you know Babylon. It was called the month of month of Nisan, and the Torah mm-hmm. it's called the month of the Aviv. And this confirms it. This confirms very clearly that the Jubilee cycle is based on the counting from uh, Nisan to Nisan, or from mm-hmm. month of the Aviv to the month of the Aviv. And that's why you're planting in the eighth year. It's the eighth Amen. year in the fall. There it is. Amen. And the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. It says. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possessions you shall grant redemption of the land. So if uh, one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. And it talks about the redemption of the land. I love that. I'm so excited for that. What it's talking about, so we've got here three times in verses 25 and 26, or four times, excuse me, we have the word... Uh, uh, Ga'al to redeem mm-hmm. Go'alo his redeemer Ga'al he redeemed Go'el uh, the redeemer Gu'ulato his redemption four times it has this verb Gimel Aleph Lamed to redeem redemption and and here it's being used in a literal sense what it's talking about is somebody who's poor he sells off his land and remember the idea here is that the land doesn't belong to you personally mm. it belongs to God Amen. and then God gives it to your line uh, in, that happens in the book of Joshua they divide up the land and everybody gets a piece of land and then it's mm. inherited to their it's get passed on to their children and their children pass it on to their children and what it's saying here is you can't go sell your land even if you sell your land you're really only leasing it for 49 up to 49 years mm-hmm. and then it goes back at the jubilee year so if three years before the jubilee year you sell your land you're essentially only selling it for three years and then it goes back to you mm-hmm. now what it's talking about in verses 25 and 26 is if a person sells that land and wants to redeem it before the jubilee year he has a redeemer and the redeemer in your translation uh jono said a redeeming relative in the yes. hebrew it just says a redeemer who is close to him so someone comes and redeems it uh for him and that's somebody who is you know uh, and it probably is a relative and the relative is thinking look i want to keep it in this family mm-hmm. but he's also doing the selfless act because that redeemer never gets to use the land he's he's essentially paying the price for that person, for the poor person, mm-hmm. he's paying the price so the poor person can get his land back so that poor person's land can be redeemed. And the reason this excites me is that this concept of, re- of redeemer is then used metaphorically later on in scripture to, re- to refer to the creator, to refer to Yehovah. And we can see that in a number of places. Isaiah loves this image. For example, Isaiah chapter uh, 43, verse 1, But now thus says Yehovah, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I will redeem you. Mm-hmm. I have singled you out by name. You are mine. And then I love the image that he has there. What does it mean that he will redeem them? If we read on, he says in verse 3, uh, for, I, for I, Yehovah, I am your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as a ransom for you, Ethiopia and Sabah in exchange for you. That is that is a really cool image because we actually had that happen in the modern state of Israel recently where there was one, one of our soldiers was was taken uh, captive by terrorists in Gaza, a man named Gilad Shalit. 
And he was held there for five years, and we had to ransom him. We had to redeem him, and we gave people in exchange for him. We gave something like a thousand terrorists, thousand, yeah, a thousand terrorists. for this one in exchange for this one Israeli soldier. And Yehovah is saying he's going to do that for his people. He's mm. saying I'll give Egypt as a ransom for you, Ethiopian Saban, in exchange for you, because you are precious to me and Amen. honored, and I love you, and I give men in exchange for you and peoples in your stead. So he's mm. saying I am going to redeem you. Yehovah will be our redeemer. Fear not. He goes in verse five, for I am with you. Mm. I bring your folk from the east. Will gather you out of the west i say to the north give back and to the south do not withhold bring my sons from afar my daughters from the end of the <laughs> yes, earth all Amen. who are linked by my name i'm going to read that again all who are linked to my name who i have created formed and made for my glory all who are linked, woo, setting free that people blind though it has eyes and deaf though it has ears and he's saying look my people isn't perfect They've got ears, but they don't hear what I'm saying. And they got eyes, but they don't always see what I'm saying. But I promise I'm going to redeem them from the four Amen. corners of the earth. And that Amen. excites me. Amen. Maybe. He's been Maybe. redeeming Amen. begun. Woo! He is the redeemer. <laughs> Hallelujah. And they're, uh, I got to catch my breath here. Uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6. I'll read a couple more. Please. Thus says the king of Israel, their redeemer. Same word. And there's the concept. Remember, the original literal concept mm -hmm. is I've sold away my land. Someone's going to come and pay the price for me. And Jehovah is paying the price for us. He's redeeming us. Amen. Their redeemer, Jehovah, hosts, I am the first. Say first. first and I am first. the last. Say last. Last. And fast. there is no God but me. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I wipe away your sins like a cloud, your transgressions like mist. Now think of the image. You know, there's a mist over the earth, and it gets real hot, and it just evaporates. It's mm -hmm. gone. I wipe away your sins like a cloud, your transgression like mist. Come back to me, for I redeem you. They haven't even repented yet. And he's saying, come back to me. Return to me. I'm going to wipe away your transgressions. Repent and come to me, for I redeem you. Shout, O heavens, for Jehovah is acted. Shout aloud, O depths of the earth. Shout o, for joy, O mountains. Oh, forest yeah. with all your trees, for Yehovah has redeemed Jacob, has glorified himself through Israel. Thus says Yehovah, your Redeemer, say Redeemer, redeemer. who formed you is I, Yehovah, who made everything, who alone stretched out the heavens and unaided spread out the earth. Mm. He is going to remember he doesn't need any help. He says, I am the only God. And, you know, look, this this is interesting because he was talking at a time. Isaiah here was speaking, you know, he talks about Cyrus in the next chapter where they believed in two gods. There was the good God and the evil God. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, Jehovah is the only God. There is no other God. He doesn't Amen. have a rival and he doesn't have a helper like the Zoroastrians believed. Jehovah is the creator. And then I, last one, and then I, I'll stop. Isaiah 47, 4. Our Redeemer, Jehovah of hosts is his name. Is the Holy One. Isaiah 47.4 So wherever we are around the world, whether we're in Australia, if we're in Jerusalem, or we're in Charlotte in, uh, in the U.S., or wherever we may be, we are redeemed if we are faithful unto him. Amen? Amen. If you are Amen. linked to his name, these promises, linked to he his will name. redeem Amen. There it is. Amen. There's a redeemer. Wow. Nevertheless, the city of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possessions, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel, but the fields of the common land and their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. So there it is. So, of course, the Levites didn't have land, but they did have that cities. Is that right? Okay. Well, so they had uh, 48 cities, six of which were then given to the Kohanim, the priests. So really, the Levites only had uh, 42 cities. And, uh, and you know, there was a certain a strip of land, what's called the Migrash, where the animals uh, kind of lived. Mm -hmm. um, and that was around the city. That was the first approximately 1,000 to 3,000 cubits uh, outside the city. And everything beyond that was the fields. So these this, um, this Migrash, this area surrounding the city, you know, has a certain status. And um, it, it's saying, look, they can't sell it. This is all they got. You can't mm. take it from them. And uh, they don't got much. They've got very little. You know, just let them have that. And But if you're a regular Israelite in a city and you sell your house, then that doesn't go back to, to you at the Jubilee in the way that the um, in the way that the um, the fields do. Mm. And, but then it talks about the unwalled cities, which basically means you're, you're building a house out in the fields. And so in that case, it does go back at the it Jubilee does. year. Now, now here's the thing. I, I got to ask this to the to the. And I, I'm I'm kind of thinking out loud. I do that sometimes. But I want to ask 
this question, you know, so the people who say that the, the, the commandment of the Jubilee applies not just to the land of Israel, that it applies to the entire world. So what exactly are they saying? That in the entire world, that when you sell a, uh, a field, that it then goes back to the person who, who originally inherited it? Mm. I mean, th- does that even make sense? I don't know. That's, yeah. that's far too confusing that, that, for me to fathom. That, that would be the ramifications. If it's not just the land of Israel, if it's the entire world, that means every time somebody owns a field um, and they sell it, then it's only for 40, up to 49 years yeah. and it goes back to that mm-hmm. original person. Well, I wish that was the case in the United <laughs> States because the bottom line is in the United States. And then the Indians forget in it all. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, 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 listen. I'm, I'm, I'm living in a house right now that they say I own the house, but the truth is I don't own the house. I pay taxes on the land. Mm-hmm. I got to continue to pay taxes on the land. See, the point the point being that no matter what, I could pay the house off. The end, I still owe money <laughs> to mm. the government and it's not for 49 years. It's not for 50 years. It's forever. Mm. So... <laughs> Mm. <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no such thing as uh, anyone owning Actually, anything over so, here. So in Israel, they, there's no pretense. They, they, they come out and tell you you don't own the land. The government owns all the land, and uh, you lease the land from the government for 49 years. Mm-hmm. That's actually what you do when, when you buy a house. They say, okay, there's 22 years uh, of land, you know, of the lease left, uh, and you know, presumably the government will renew it after 49 years. But you know, they could come after 49 years and mm-hmm. say they won't renew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what house. I like about house, that, that, that's the one thing. <laughs> one of the things I like about Israel, and you know, listen, I know there's a lot we can say that, that you know what the Orthodox do, or what the rabbis do, mm-hmm. or what the people do, or what the government does, and who likes who and whatever. But just to even be in a place that acknowledges that such a thing exists, <laughs> just to be in a place that acknowledges that we're going to go by the 49 years. We don't know what year it is, but you got 49 years. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the timing is, but this is the deal regarding. I mean, that to me is. I don't know. Something about that's kind of cool. And we know it's going to be restored, and we look forward to that. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like the stranger or sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend to him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at profit. I am Yehovah Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and, and, and a sojourner. Uh, he shall be with you and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And so once again, he, the year of Jubilee comes and the slaves go free. It's not so though with the, um, uh, with the foreigners, right? We go to verse 44 and it says, um, and as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, uh, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the stranger who dwell among you and their families who are with you, uh, which they beget in, in, in your land, and they shall become your property. How about that? They become your property. And uh, it says you may take them as an inheritance to your children after you. And so it, it, it's, it's continual to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. That doesn't, uh, Keith, I don't know about you, but, you know, I don't see that one uh, easily preached from the pulpit. That's not one that really flies in the tradition that I came from. Well, here's the thing. This is the pick and choose mentality of the church, the pick and choose mentality of nations. You know, when it's convenient, we're the Israelites. This is why we can have slaves. When it's not convenient, we don't know anything about Israel. We don't know. I mean, (laughs) the point is there's sort of this pick and choose. And so, for example, in the the times of in, in the American uh, process of slavery, this would be a verse that they'd say, those of you that don't understand, here God says we can be, this is what we can do. Of course, separating it from context, separating it from the land, separating from the people, we're the new Israelites, we're the new church, and so now we can enslave Africans and we have a biblical mm-hmm. base for it. Really? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, there's, just, there's always this attempt that when it's convenient, call forth Israel. When it's not, we don't have anything to do with it. Mm. So it's a pick-and-choose mentality. That's my simple opinion. Has been. Um, Nehemiah, can I ask, so what, what is it going to say? So if, if uh, can a sojourner, can a foreigner own uh, an Israelite as a slave, as a permanent possession? Well, there, there's actually a couple different things being described here. So basically you have you have kind of three different categories of people living in the land of Israel. And we, we talked about this when we dealt with Exodus 12, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was 43 through 49. Sure. And we've got the native-born Israelite, We've got the sojourner in Hebrew. That's called a ger, and you've got the toshav. The toshav is a resident. He's a, a gentile who lives in the land of Israel. He's not circumcised. Doesn't want to join Israel. Doesn't want to be part of Israel, and he remains essentially as a separate category. So we've got here. Um, uh, it's talking about both the ger and the toshav, and what it's basically saying is, uh, if someone is sold to them, 
that you know, even though uh, one of them is someone who has entered into the covenant and the other one is someone who's not even in the covenant, um, that still they can be redeemed. Mm-hmm. That um, the the same you know you you're allowed to you have to treat their purchase of an Israelite the same way as if one Israelite purchased purchased another Israelite. Right. Right. And um, and, and you can redeem them. And so that's um, uh, and the reason for that right is explained in fifty five. Yeah. It says, "For the children of Israel are right. servants to me." Okay. So in the same right. way that that he says in regarding uh, the land that uh, that the land is mine. The land shall not be sold permanently. For the land mm-hmm. is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And then it says in 55, for the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am Yehovah your Elohim. What I want to say, that, and again, I know we're, I know we're going to probably backtrack a little bit, but again, it, it, there are some tough passages that, that, that the people of Israel had to have listened to. Once every seven years, they'd come and they would stand and hear the entire Torah being mm. read, and there would be these tough passages. I mean, difficult. Here's what you're going to have to do about this. Let's just be honest. You know, here, Here's what you're going to have to do about the land. Here's what you're going to have to do about the people. And what is so cool to me is this, what I call this, um, this mile marker, the mile marker that keeps coming up. And the mile marker is this. <clears throat> I brought you out of Egypt. I am Yehovah, your God. Mm-hmm. Here's a tough passage. I brought you out of Egypt. I am Yehovah, your God. Here's something I'm asking you to do for you to get blessing that may, may seem uh, difficult or inconvenient for you. I am Yehovah. I brought you out of the mm-hmm. land of Egypt. And So when I see that line, I know that I can even hear Yehovah saying, okay, look, this might be a little tough for them right now, but I'm going to remind them of who they are and whose they are mm-hmm. and who I am. There it is. All right, so I'm going to leave on that. The last two verses, uh, in fact, of this uh, Torah portion is the first two verses of chapter 26. We're going to go there now. You ready? Yes. Let's do it. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am Yehovah Elohim. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yehovah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so obviously, obviously, um, this very thing, and again, I don't want to throw people under the bus, but, you know, to mess around with his Sabbaths and to try to change his Sabbaths and try to come up with other systems and plans and ideas mm. and processes for his Sabbaths, I don't think it's something you really want to mess with. I think, <laughs> he, he, you know, what, one of the things we know is that we, under, we can understand his Sabbaths, we can actually know when they are, we can count the time. I'm not talking about the whole discussion regarding the, which, when the Sabbath year is regarding the land, but in terms of the seven-day Sabbath and how we can count the beginning of the year, sighting of the new moon, and know when his holy days are. I think that's something that we should take very, very seriously and, and very sober, be very sober about it mm-hmm. and, and attempt to, to the best of our ability to get on his time to know when his Sabbaths are so that we can have a reverence for them. Amen. 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 Keith, before we disappear, let me just ask you, you mentioned your uh, YouTube channel. Um, can you just remind everyone where right. they can find out what that what that's called? Um, it's it's Keith E. Johnson um, is the YouTube channel. And I just mentioned that because I've got the deal on there at the, at the Lutheran Church. Yeah. Uh, there's some other stuff on there too, but but basically... Um, you know, just a, just an idea. And I, one of the things that I've really appreciated about Nehemiah, and I, I used to argue with him, Jono, on a regular basis. You know, a couple of years ago, he says, Keith, you know, you gotta you gotta share this, and you gotta get on Facebook. And I, I hate that kind of stuff. I used to hate that kind of stuff because I thought it's just extra, you know. But what I found, and he was right, is that there are so many different channels of opportunity to share communication. We've got Torah pearls. You know, we've got our websites. It's hollowedname.com, prayerofatherfather.com. Carite Corner, you know, I mean, .org. Is it CarriteCorner.org? Is that right, Nehemiah? Mm-hmm. That's correct. CarriteCorner.org. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Facebook, you know, he's got his, he's got, he, this guy is so huge, man. He's got a public Facebook page, and then he's got a private Facebook page. I mean, I've only got one. <laughs> but but the point is, the, the point is, is that where we can get the information out, um, we need to do that. The YouTube mm-hmm. channels, all of that stuff. Again, I want to say, for all those people out there that really are, trying to get information out there and they're using different ways i think we should take that information bring it in but then hold it up to what scripture says and attempt to uh, find out what the best way is to approach it mm-hmm. amen. yes amen so there it is my dear listeners and by the way you can freely download this and other torah pearls you go to the uh, the website truth and the torah pearls page they are all there for you to listen to and if these programs have been a blessing to you you can also show your support by donating at truth that's truth number two letter u.org next week we are in Behu Kotai did I do that right? Mm-hmm. yay yep. you the always biggest, do it right the biggest 26 verse 3 to 27 verse 34 and until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.